Please be seated. You can turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, or the text is printed along the next page of the bulletin for you as well. Um, 1 Corinthians 2. We, we started going through the book of Acts um, this fall, this last fall. Uh, and we took a break during Advent to talk about the, the Christmas story. And uh, we're continuing to sing some of the songs that are associated with Advent until next Sunday, which is Epiphany Sunday. Um, but uh, we're talking about it. It's like, why not sing Christmas songs all year round? Some of those are really great. So you might see some of those uh, snuck in every once in a while. <clears throat> Um, as I said during the announcements, uh, we are taking steps as a church toward the, the uh, point of particularization or organization as a formal, full-fledged, uh, regular church in our denomination. And that means uh, one of the things we have to do is have elders. Uh, having deacons would also be nice. But uh, having elders is um, actually necessary if we want to be our own church and uh, uh, no longer a mission church or a church plant. Um, and so there's a process that we're going to start in February. Again, we're having uh, nominations through the month of February, and then we'll start training the folks who are nominated. Um, and then we'll have eventually later in the year election and uh, hopefully ordination and installation uh, early next year if everything goes according to plan, <clears throat> my plan. Um, and so this month in January, we're continuing on our break from the book of Acts. We're going to look at uh, leadership in the church. Uh, this will, I think, be a time that is helpful to us uh, for those who are maybe thinking about, um, uh, you know, in, in preparation for thinking about being officers, uh, and then also to help you all to know uh, what to look for biblically when you think about whom to nominate as elders and deacons. And so um, this morning we're going to kind of look more broadly at church leadership, and then the next few weeks we'll kind of focus in on what elders and deacons are and what they do and what they're like. So, um, so this morning, in our text, we're going to look at the cross-centered life. The cross-centered life. This text is not limited to leaders. Um, so don't go to sleep, don't feel like you can check out or whatever. It is not uh, limited to leaders, it has something to say to all of us. And it comes really pleasantly at the first day of the new year um, as something that we should want uh, each of us it, to, to shape our lives as individuals more and more, this cross-centered life. Uh, it comes as something that really defines our church's lifeblood and our mission. So if we wanted some kind of slogan this year, we could say cross-centered life or something, you know. Um, it, it also comes as, um, as an essential, essential identifying marker for uh, church leaders or potential church leaders. Uh, so let's talk about the cross-centered life. Let's pray first, and then we'll read from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Father, we want to draw close to you, and we know that uh, that only happens by your grace, by your spirit who uses your word and so we pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you would draw us close to yourself, 
that you would change our hearts and minds, uh, that you would help us to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ, who uh, is the perfect image of you as we should be, uh, so he is. And so we pray that you would fashion us more and more after his likeness. Uh, For his glory's sake, we pray in his name. Amen. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So just a little background on our passage. Uh, Acts chapter 18 is the record of Paul's first visit to Corinth, which is a city in Greece. Um, As usual, Paul began, he started off uh, doing apologetics, right? Defending the faith um, in the Jewish synagogues testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah that they're all looking for. This is the Savior. This is our King. And when the Jews opposed and reviled him, he left them to their own fate, and he went literally next door to the house of a Gentile worshiper named Titius Justus. And the ruler of the synagogue, an influential man uh, named Crispus, became a believer, and he and his whole household were baptized, and then they were persecuted by the Jews. Um, And many of the Corinthians became Christians. And so began the church in Corinth. And as you read Paul's letters to the Corinthians, uh, a few things stand out to us. (laughs) First, uh, the church is pretty messed up, uh, just like the city of Corinth. Um, Sectarianism, spiritual one-upsmanship, Uh, Sexual immorality, various expressions of selfishness are just rampant in the church. Second thing you notice is that Paul really loves the Corinthians. Uh, Yeah, it's a messed up bunch of folks in that church. But he writes two long letters to help them in their walk with God, to help them in their faith. Compare that with his abrupt, scathing letter to the Galatians. You know, it's the religious folks who seem to have everything together. And you'll see that there's a dear spot in Paul's heart for Corinth, for the church there. Third, uh, Paul addresses all of the Corinthians' problems, all these behavioral problems. He uh, addresses with the gospel. As in all of his letters... The good news about Jesus Christ is the only foundation that Paul offers for the transformation of lives, whether it comes to lawsuits or sex or the way that you treat others or whatever. And our passage is in a section at the beginning of this first letter to the Corinthians where Paul is addressing the way they view church leaders. He's addressing the way they view church leaders. See, there's been this unhealthy practice uh, of sort of personality cults, right? Uh, thinking that you know, this preacher is better than this one because he's more eloquent or clever or whatever, 
And we all want to be identified with that guy because it makes us all look better, makes us all look more sophisticated in the eyes of the people around us. Apollos is articulate. He's a good philosophical debater. Paul just keeps tripping over his words. He's rather unimpressive in person. And our reputation benefits when we see people, uh, when, when people see us as being aligned with someone more like Apollos, right? Uh, well, Paul exposes that for what it is in the first couple of chapters here. It's self-exaltation. And it's based on working the world's value system. So the world values things like wisdom and power and wealth, the things that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And the world values those things, especially in leaders, those who are in authority, right? But God works in spite of those things to bring people to a true knowledge of himself, which is really the only thing that matters in this life and in the next. In fact, the values of the kingdom of God are pretty much the exact opposite of the values of this world, right? Jesus said, um, the, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace, the ultimate leader, right? The head of the church said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for traitors to his own crown. He used his authority not for self advancement, but to serve others who didn't deserve it. Being God himself, he didn't consider that something to be grasped at, something to be held on to, but he emptied himself of, of glory and laid down his very life for love. And he said that anyone who wants to be a leader in his kingdom has to be last of all, servant, slave of all. In fact, every Christian, not just those who are leaders in the church, but every Christian is to pick up his or her cross to deny self and follow Jesus daily. So it's the way of life, the way of life that God has revealed to us in Jesus is the way of self-sacrificial love. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is a unique cross being that singular time and place where the Son of God, who became a, a man, offered himself as a perfect sacrifice for sins once for all, right? so that we can be considered righteous in God's sight, so that we can be reconciled to God and have peace in a relationship with God. The cross of Jesus Christ is the only way to have a relationship with God, and it is the symbol of his love. The cross is the symbol of his grace flowing toward us in the face of our rebellion, in the face of our sin. And Jesus was willing to suffer a cruel death as a criminal in our stead in order to provide a way for us to have eternal life with God. And that's the cross of Christ. And the cross of Jesus Christ is the pattern. It's also the pattern for our lives, right? We also must suffer like our leader suffered in order to bring light and love to a dark and evil world that is dead set against God. We 
have to move out in forgiveness and in acceptance toward those who don't deserve it. Because that's what God did for us through Jesus. And living that way is only possible when you're fueled by God's love, when his free grace is worth more to you than, um, than your pride or your comfort. And that's what Jeremiah was talking about uh, in our Old Testament reading. If you turn back there. Jeremiah 9, read that again. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast or glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And um, Paul quoted from that passage immediately before our text, this morning's text, in his uh, argument for why the Corinthians should not be so obsessed with the things that this world values, especially when it comes to how they view their leaders or how they want their leaders' qualities to reflect on them. So he says in our passage about his own ministry in Corinth, Paul writes, I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided, I made up my mind, I resolved, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. So in, uh, in seminary preaching classes, a lot of the time is spent on delivery, uh, which in my mind can sometimes be equated with lofty speech. <laughs> you get dinged for stuff like trembling. Trembling is bad. Um, and if you demonstrate weakness or fear, then your professor takes you aside after class and asks you whether you really think you're cut out for preaching. Paul is saying that he might not have scored well in homiletics class, but that he kept focusing on the main thing, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. In fact, he said he determined to know nothing else during his time in Corinth. To know nothing else than the gospel. In one of my seminary preaching classes, uh, my professor told me that if you preach the gospel every week, it'll get boring pretty quick. Uh, but Paul preached the gospel and nothing but the gospel all the time, the whole time he was in Corinth, which is uh, one and a half years. And he's not saying that he spent every sermon telling people the mechanics of how to become a Christian. Right? How to enter into a relationship with God. And he's not saying that, you know, there are a lot of things that are really important in the Bible, but the gospel, the cross, is the most important, so it gets the most airtime. That's not what he's saying. He's saying just what Jesus said about himself in John 5 and in Luke 24, that the whole Bible is about Jesus. The whole Bible is about finding life in Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus as our Redeemer, our Savior. Every book, every passage is set within the context of the gospel. Every passage either talks about our desperate 
need for salvation, highlighting our sins and our weaknesses in every conceivable part of our lives, or about God's gracious provision for our salvation, his setting us free from all of our slavery to sin, his welcoming us into his family as his sons and daughters, his promises of life everlasting, all bought by the sacrificial death, the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. So Paul is saying that he, as a leader in the church, figured he had nothing to say if it didn't somehow point to the gospel. He had nothing to say if it wasn't an exposition of the gospel from the Holy Scriptures. Nothing to say if it wasn't an application of the gospel to some part of our life or another. Nothing to say if it didn't exalt the grace and the righteousness of God as seen in the gospel. Paul is saying that the cross, the strange, gracious, upside-down, self-sacrificial love of God seen at the cross, it's not just the message he's devoted to sharing. It's also the method, the way of his life, the way of his ministry. Because you can't divorce the message of the cross from the method of the cross. You can't proclaim the self-emptying, self-humiliating, self-sacrificial love of God at the cross while living in a self-aggrandizing, self-serving way. Those two things don't jive. You can't proclaim the Savior who chose the way of the cross while you continue to value the ways of this world. Because if you're clinging to your own honor or your own wisdom or your own power, then you're saying that those are how you find status in God's sight. Those are how you find satisfaction in this world. Those are what gives you purpose, what shape your identity, what bring you joy. And that means you don't really need the grace of God to save you. And Paul's saying that he, as a leader in the church, came to the Corinthians not just with the words that exalted the grace of God, but with a life that showed his joyful dependence on that grace, with a demeanor that called attention not to himself, but to God, to Jesus. Right? It says in verse 4, My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If I were a charismatic, persuasive, philosophical debater, he says, all things that are highly valued by the world, which is rejecting God, right, as ways to set ourselves apart from and above each other, then you might be more fascinated with that than you would be with the gospel if I came to you in that way. Right? But if I come with weakness, unpolished, unenviable in speech, and I tell you that God even loves broken people like you and me, then when you place your trust, you, you place your hope in Jesus, it'll be a demonstration of God's spirit, God's power to do what only he can do in changing you by his grace. Paul's talking specifically about himself as a preacher, and so the most immediate application is probably to preachers, uh, and personally speaking, this idea of um, a cross-centered message and method of life is 
absolutely the essential element of my philosophy of ministry and philosophy of preaching. It pretty much sums up my highest aspirations to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And it also pretty much sums up my greatest disappointments about myself as a minister. Right? I wish I weren't so concerned with what you think of me as a speaker. That my only thought and affection was for the grace of God at work in your lives. But I'm really, I'm really just a messed up sinner who desperately needs the same grace that, um, that he proclaims to you. You may have heard this analogy. The best evangelist is like a thirsty person leading another thirsty person to where they can find a drink of water. And that's good. That's how the fountain of living waters is exalted and not the thirsty guy who's leading the fellow who's just like him. When everything you say and everything you do points to the cross, to the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ, then God is exalted. And others are truly helped and encouraged in their faith. Now, that's not just applicable to pastors or church leaders. It applies to everyone who wants to honor God in their lives, to everyone who wants to participate in the life of the church. But a church leader will be specially marked by this, by a constant redirection of people's attention to Jesus Christ and him crucified. A leader in the church must have a cross-centered message and a cross-centered method or way of life. A leader in the church is recognized by his ability to apply the gospel to any situation in life for the good of those around him. Someone who calls attention to himself by his eloquence, who is constantly talking about himself, promoting himself, who comes across as condescending or patronizing or judgmental, has no place in the leadership of the church. Rather, church leaders need to exemplify repentance and faith. They need to demonstrate repentance and faith. They need to exemplify humble reliance on the grace of God and a thankful celebration of God's life that's freely given to them. Church leaders need to cultivate an atmosphere where all kinds of people feel encouraged by the gospel, not where some kinds of people feel excluded, not where some kinds of people feel beaten up with the Bible. You'll recognize good church leaders as those who don't much think of themselves as church leaders because they don't much think of themselves at all because they think more of Jesus Christ. They'll be the first ones to say, I don't have it all together. They'll be the first ones to say, there will surely be many others entering heaven before me. They'll be the first ones to say, this country is messed up, not because of those people out there, but because of people like me. This church, this community is messed up because of people like me. And they'll be the first ones to say, thanks be to God, that everything is joy and light And love that all is on the mend because God has chosen to dwell with his people by his grace. Because God has become a human and went to the cross to save us from ourselves. Because God has put his spirit in our hearts to assure us of his love. And good church leaders will be the ones 
about whom you all will tend to say, I'm always encouraged in my faith when I'm around them. They're always talking about how amazing Jesus is, and it's contagious. I don't understand it, but they always show me love and acceptance. They always remind me of my adoption as a son or as a daughter of God, even if I'm a jerk to them. They inspire me to rejoice in my salvation when I'm down. They point me toward how the gospel changes me to be a more forgiving person, a more loving parent, a better friend to people who are totally different from me, who I would never hang out with otherwise. They really help me to pray and be thankful. I am reminded of Jesus Christ crucified by them, by their words and by their service to me. Now, the, the people who make for good leaders in the church aren't necessarily successful in the world's eyes. They're not always the wise or the rich or the powerful. In fact, when you believe in the cross and when you live the way of the cross, you're going right against the grain of the whole world and its value system. But when the whole world is plunging headlong into the dark, it's probably a good thing to turn around and uh, make your way upstream toward the light. So let's follow folks who are doing that, who are pointing to that light in the darkness, who are leading us to that one stream in the desert by exalting the grace of God in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. God, there are so many obstacles in our hearts and in our minds to accepting your love, accepting who you are and what you've done for us at the cross, especially when all of it means that we need to become more like you and give up ourselves, our rights, our privileges, for the sake of others who have hurt us or who just don't deserve grace and mercy. But that's exactly who we all are before you. We don't deserve your love. We can never earn your favor, and yet you have freely given it to us uh, by a great sacrifice. And so we pray that you would keep us ever mindful of the cross, that you would help the grace and love of our Lord Jesus to be on our lips constantly, that we build one another up in our faith. And we pray that you would help us to demonstrate the way of the cross in our lives, that you'd help us to be servants like our leader is a servant, that you would help us even to be slave of all by your grace. We pray this for the sake of your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>